Well, good evening, each one of you. I thought that was a beautiful chapter to read. I was looking at the eighth verse there, the psalmist asking that the Lord will perfect, that is complete, that the Lord will complete that which concerneth me. And I, I, you know, I was thinking this evening, you know, God probably looks at meetings like this maybe a bit different than we do. He's just like, great, here I've got him sitting for, you know, every evening for maybe seven evenings where I can just take an opportunity to speak into their lives. We come, yeah, well, maybe God will speak to me tonight. God's there so anxious. But here the psalmist says that God is going to perfect that which concerneth me. So that tells me that the psalmist was saying, you know, I'm not complete. But God is going to complete that thing that I'm concerned about. Are you concerned about it tonight? Thy mercies, O Lord, endureth forever. Definitely they do because he is so patient. He is so patient. Praise the Lord for his patience. Yeah, very good. Well, we're together. I just thought of a title for the week so that maybe maybe it'll give you a little bit of an idea of the burden that's on my heart. But the title for the whole week is A Healthy Community of Believers. That would be my goal. I believe that's God's goal. And we're going to talk about a lot of different aspects this week. But the whole, I believe the whole goal is not so much to make you in yourself godly, God-fearing, but He has a lot more than that. He wants to take you who love the Lord, who desire to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, who has that life flowing in Him He put you into a body of believers. And so, we want to look at a healthy community of believers. And our goal, you can turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, just to read here at the beginning. What I believe is God's goal, would be our goal also, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4.11, this is... I believe not only God's goal, but that it should be our goal too. And he gave some apostles and some prophets, some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Why did he give them? For the perfecting or the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith. And of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind and doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into Him in all things, not just some things, in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from the whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. And so that is pretty good description of the title, A Healthy Community of Believers. And God has given pastors, teachers, prophets to equip the saints. And so that's what this is all about. We come together together. So that God can equip us, so that we can 
be a beautiful body that learns to, to it, it, it re, uh, can't even say the word, re, it's not going to come. But anyhow, just, just one part of the body blesses the other and it grows up until it's a beautiful body. So that's my goal. By the help of the Holy Spirit, through your prayers for me, I might be able to encourage this work of perfection in what we call the church. <clears throat> Another goal that I would have this week and would hopefully be able to do it every evening, maybe not every evening, but I would like to see if I can do that. And I would like to begin each evening with an illustration using that of the honeybee. I wonder if we have any folks in here who has hives of honeybees. Do you have hi- anyone in here Raise honeybees. No one raises honeybees. Well, then I'm pretty safe. Then I can share things and you know, I can't guarantee it's all correct. In our congregation, we have a number of real good beekeepers. I'd like to share uh, an illustration each evening on the honeybee to go with the sermon. My wife actually has honeybees. They're not my honeybees. They're hers. She has two hives. She's been raising honeybees for a number of years. And uh, she's quite the woman. She wears no protection. She'll work with the bees with no protection. I'm a little scared of them. And that's probably why they get upset at me. So she, when later in the season when the hives get full of honey, they get pretty heavy, so she needs somebody to help her. And so she normally got the, some of the, my boys to help her. And then one day I said, well, I'm going to help you. Oh, she was all excited. So we were out there, and I was lifting these off, and after a while she says, hmm, they seem to be getting a little bit angry. They were buzzing around some. And then after a while she reaches down, she picks up her skirt a little bit, and she snaps a bee off of her leg. Guess where it went? Right to my nose, the tip of my nose, and stung me. (laughs) So, she thought she'd never get me to help again, but I did help again. The next time, I put on coveralls, I put on boots, I put on gloves, I put on a hat with a uh, mesh, and I helped her. She felt so sorry for me because till I got out of those coveralls, I was soaking wet from sweat. I'd like to bring... Each evening, if I can, a different aspect of the honeybee to go with my sermon. There's so many lessons we can learn. The honeybee is amazing. Uh, There is just so many amazing things about the honeybee that, you know what, if we just studied the honeybee, we could get some tremendous lessons that would really help our Christian life. There's lessons in interpersonal relationships. There's lessons about give and take. There's lessons about promotion of the greater cause. There's the lessons of dependence and etc. If we're going to have a strong, vibrant church body or community, it highly depends upon each individual. And so tonight, the first thing we're going to consider about the honeybee, I suppose that all of us know with the honeybee there are Three different bees. The one is the queen, the other is the worker bee, and the other is the drone. 
Tonight we're going to consider the drone. The drone is unique in that it is bigger than the worker bees. It's, they are the male bees. They are burly, clumsy creatures, more so than just the worker bees. But they don't work. They are simply no workers. They don't work anything. And they don't sting either. You don't have to be worried about getting stung from a drone. They can't sting. The males de develop from unfertilized eggs. All the fertilized eggs become worker bees. The only function that the drones are for is to mate with the young queen. All they're for. Other than that, they have no work. They just sit in there and they enjoy the work of the worker bees. In the fall, when the honey flow is over, guess what the worker bees do with the drones? They kill them all off. They kill them all off because they don't work. And if they're going to be in the hive all winter, they're going to eat so much of honey, so they kill them all off. Now, a healthy hive is supposed to have mostly worker bees and very few drones, just, just some drones. An unhealthy hive has a lot of drones. My wife, when she opens up, she, she's, she, she can tell which cells will hatch out drones and which will hatch out worker bees. She can tell which are drones and which are worker bees. And she definitely is very interested in seeing that there is mostly worker bees. These drones become a liability. And because of being a liability, God just so made it, so beautifully made it, that you just clean them all off, get them out of the way. And I had to wonder, are there drones in the church? Are there drones in the church that are just like bloodsuckers? They're living off of, the, off of the community of believers and yet they don't work. They're just drones. I thought of uh, Revelation where Spirit uh, was uh, speaking to the, one of the churches there and it said, uh, God said, that he'd rather have them cold or hot. But since you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew thee out of my mouth. That seems a, bit, a little bit like the worker bee. Hey, autumn's coming. It's getting cold. We've got to save all this honey. And we don't want you eating it because you're not working. You're not an asset. You're a liability. I will spew thee out of thy mouth. Out of my mouth. I thought of 1 Corinthians 13, it reminds us that we can do all our religious activity if we do it for the wrong reason and the wrong motive. All of it's worth nothing. It's worth nothing. Now, it is a bit of a mystery. As we think of uh, the drone, it's, it's a mystery. And I don't think even some of the best beekeepers have really figured out how is it determined the level of worker bees versus drones. What determines that? 
Some think, well, it's very, very simple. The, if the queen doesn't fertilize the egg, it becomes a drone. Well, it's a little more complicated than that because the worker bees are the ones who make the cells. And they make a little bit bigger cells for the drones. So, and then too, so that it doesn't mess up the, the nice formation of the, of the comb, they will put the drone cells on the outside because they're bigger. If they stick them here and there in the middle, it would mess up their blueprint. And so they put them on the outside edge. Now, not only do they, workers, make certain amount of cells for the drones, um, sometimes the workers will decide, well, we're going to just fill some of those drone cells up with honey. As if, hey, we don't need a lot of those guys, let's fill some of those up with honey. So they fill them up with honey. Not only that, but sometimes they'll actually eat the egg, the drone egg, to control how many drones there are. Or after the drone hatches out, they'll sometimes eat the larva. So nobody really knows why, you know, who or what determines how many drones versus, versus worker bees. I think that is so interesting. That is so marvelous. That is so, such a demonstration of our Creator. Such a demonstration. And so tonight as we go through this message one of the things we want to kind of remember is this idea of the drone. The church of Jesus Christ doesn't need any drones. We're supposed to all be vitally connected to the Lord Jesus Christ, filled with the Holy Ghost, filled with the Holy Spirit. Just as my wife goes to the hive hoping to find lots and lots of worker bees and just a few drones. And just as a hive cannot survive with mostly drones, neither can a community of believers survive without men and women who are vitally connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. So tonight, my title is Walking in the Spirit. I have three points we want to talk about. We want to talk about walking in the Spirit. We want to talk about walking not in the flesh. And we want to talk about free from the law of sin and death. I'd like to turn to Romans chapter 8. You can turn there with me. I'd like to read the first 14 verses. And then consider these three points. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 14. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the... For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But you're not of the, in the flesh, 
but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Let's notice in verse 2, it says, For the law of the Spirit, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. We can replace the word law with, let's just use three other verses. I think it just brings it out so much clearer. For the law of the Spirit of life, for the law or for the rule, of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the rule of sin and death. For the command of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the command of sin and death. For the influence of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the influence of sin and death. The man or woman who is born again is ruled by, is commanded by, is influenced by the Spirit of God. That's the way it should be. But the man or woman who's not born again, they're ruled by, they're commanded by, they're influenced by sin and death. By sin and death. Verse 6. It says in verse 6, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The question is, what is the man or woman minding? What are they minding? What are they paying attention to? What are they interested in? What are they thinking about? The Bible says if we think about, if we're interested in, if we're paying attention to, if we're minding the flesh, it says it produces death. It doesn't say leads to death. It doesn't say goes in the direction of death. It says it is death. It is death. It also says that to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Life and peace. Not leads to, not goes in that direction. It is life and peace if we're filled with the Spirit of God. Verse 13. For if you live after the flesh, if you live to indulge in your carnal propensities. It doesn't say, ye shall die. It says, ye shall die. It doesn't say, maybe. Let's look at that. It says, for if you live after the flesh, ye shall die. So if you're living after the flesh, it doesn't say that 
If you're indulging in carnal propensities, you shall die. It doesn't say maybe you will die. It doesn't say, well, likely you will. Ye shall die. There's no question. Ye shall die. So with the aid of the Holy Spirit, we mortify, we put to death. And it says, you shall live, you shall flourish. You shall have that more abundant life. So by this train of reasoning, the apostle, through the Spirit, has shown that the gospel has accomplished what the law could not do. The sanctification of the soul. The destruction of the corrupt passions of our nature. And the recovery of man to God. Tonight, just as the beekeeper wants to see a hive full of worker bees, so in the kingdom of God, there's no room for drones. There's no room for drones. So what should we expect? As we consider walking in the Spirit, what should we expect? There was a man who gave testimony. His name was Charles Trumbull. And he said this. He said he slowly recognized a conscious need. He had been born again and saved. And yet, as he walked through life, he became conscious of his need. There was this great fluctuation of his spiritual life. One day he was way up and he was doing well. And the next time he was way down and he wasn't doing well. And so he became conscious of his need. The need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The need to walk in fellowship with God. One day he had great fellowship. And the next day he had great defeat. Sometimes he would hear a good message preached. And he got all revived again. And then just a short time later, it would die out. And then he was down for a while. Sometimes he did very well when tempted. The next time, it was defeat after defeat. And so he started asking the question, is there more? There's got to be more than this. When the Bible says about walking in the Spirit and having life, and it talks about that if Jesus has come to give life and to give it more abundance, surely there's got to be more. And he started crying out, Oh, isn't there more? Surely, he said, I see other people that have more than what I got. Some areas, he was more than a conqueror. Other areas, he had besetting sins. That he just could not conquer. And so he started to earnestly pray. And he prayed. And he prayed. And one time, by the providence of God, he heard a message preached out of John chapter 7. Just turn over there. We'll read those couple verses. He heard a message preached by the providence of God. John chapter 7 and verse 37. Jesus there in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spake of the Spirit, which that they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, 
because that Jesus was not yet glorified. He heard a message. And once again, he heard about the rivers of living water that flow continually and can flow out of one's belly who has truly walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. So what happened to Charles, brother Charles that day? He came to realize that Jesus Christ was by abiding within. Jesus Christ was living within. What more? He found that Jesus came and was in union to him. He was one in every area. One in mind, one in spirit, one in body. He, he said, yet, I still had my own identity. Yeah, I had my free will. I had my free, full moral responsibility. But I came to conclude that Jesus was living within me. I was in union with Him. He was in union with me. We walked together. We talked together. And it was a transform, transformation for Brother Charles. God was working. He said, God was working in me, working through me, working with me. That was his testimony. Jesus Christ was not just a helper. He was living in the life of Charles Trumbull. Too many drones, too many dropouts, too many experiencing what Charles did. They become tired of fighting against sin. And like a fish, fighting against the current, finally gives up and goes with the current. Some have not completely sold out. They're not willing to go the whole way. And thus, their life is like this. God has more for us. God wants more for us. He wants that overcoming life. Some have never found the beautiful life. They've just found the Christian life to be a bunch of do's and don'ts. Sitting with a young man the other night, I said, you need to get born again. You need to get born again. It is the most exciting life. It's the overcoming life. It's the blessed life. It's a beautiful life. I wonder sometimes if there's too many drones in our churches. They become a liability rather than an asset. Point number two, walk not after the flesh. Walk not after the flesh. Don't walk after the flesh. What I think of when I think of walking after the flesh, I think of a me-centered person. A me-centered person. Rather than a God-centered person. A me-centered person rather than a God-centered person. And so, what do we concern ourselves about? It's about how I feel. It's about what I want. It's about what I will do for me. It's about how it will benefit me. Walk not after the flesh. Brothers and sisters, walk not after the flesh. The self-life must be crucified. 
The self-life must be crucified. Jesus is our model. He said, I've come to do thy will, O God, not mine own will. He said, my meat, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me. What I live for, the very thing I live for is for the Lord Jesus Christ. I think there's too many drones just living for themselves. They're eating the honey. They're enjoying the honey. And they're not working. They're not doing anything. My meat is to do the will of my Father. Jesus also said, I am the good shepherd that giveth his life for the sheep. Another place it says, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Am I a me-centered person? Or am I a Christ-centered person? We all need to ask that question. If you can become a Christ-centered person, it will transform anyone's life. Why is the self-life so prevalent? Well, that's because the self-life is a big, has a big family. There's lots of them. There's a whole bunch of them. And about the time we got one, we find there's another one. Self-life has a big family. Just a few of them. One of them is self-absorption. This is one who is consumed with himself. All of life revolves around him. You know, there's people that they draw a white circle. They stand inside that circle. And then the only thing they, the only thing they think about is what's inside the circle. Me-centered Christianity. Self-absorption. Another one is self-conceit. An inflated opinion of oneself. An inflated opinion of oneself. God resisteth the proud. He giveth grace to the humble. He resisteth the proud. He giveth grace to the humble. Another one of the family is self-confidence. Confident in one's own self and in one's own powers and abilities. Instead of realizing that without Him, without me, Jesus said, ye can do nothing. Nothing at all. Me-centered Christianity. Another one of the family is self-pity. A self-indulgent. Dwelling in one's own sorrows or misfortunes. There's so many people today that are crying the blues. Woe is me. Poor me. Feel sorry for me. Me-centered Christianity. You know, the worker bee is there for the bigger cause. And we're going to see that different times throughout this week as we study the honeybee, the worker bee. And there is so many interesting things about that worker bee and the cycle it goes through. It is there for one thing, and it's there for the bigger cause. I mean, if all of us in our homes, in our churches, and in our communities, we could get that vision, and we could lay self aside, and we could become others-centered, Christ-centered, it would change our lives. It would change our lives. The honeybee... The worker bee is there for the bigger cause, the cause outside of himself. You want to find
find your life, you're going to have to lose it. You're going to have to lose it. The drone, what's he there for? That's right, primarily for himself. He is there primarily for himself. That's why we're having so much difficulties in our homes. Husbands, we're so selfish. I mean, if we truly loved our wives like Christ loved the church, we'd transform our marriage. I was talking to one gentleman, and I said, you don't understand the influence and the power that you have in Christ. You can win your wife. There is few women that won't respond to a selfless man who loves them, their wife, like Christ loved the church. There's just very few women that wouldn't respond to that. But we're selfish. It's about me. And so, I like to tell the men sometimes when they're ready to go home, I say, now, just something you want to remember now when you go home. How does this work? What is the procedure? Jesus first, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Jesus first. Who's next? Well, I guess, yeah, your wife and children, they're next. And then who's last? Um, I guess me. You know, so simple. It's just a simple little song, but it would transform our life. It would. It would transform our life. One of uh, Socrates' disciples said to him, why do, you, why do you tell all of your disciples when, when they come, I want to be your disciple? And then he interviews them. And one of the things he did when he interviewed them was he made them go look into the pond. And he's like, why do you have them all look into the pond? And the old sage said, it's very simple. I'm ready to accept all those who tell me they see the fish swimming around. Those that only see their own image mirrored in the water, are in love with their ego. He said, I have no use for him. I have no use for him. Who do you see? Who do you see? Me focused? Me centered? There was one determined attitude in those who made it in the Nazi concentration death camps. There was a difference. Some of them didn't make it. And some of them made it. And there was one determined attitude between them. You know, these men could be starving. But, if they had a crust of bread or a scrap of potatoes, if they would share that, even though they were starving, if they would share some of it, with another prisoner who was also starving. They're the ones who made it. They're the ones who lived. They said, this one gentleman who stated this, who observed this, who was in the Nazi death camp, he said this. He said, when, as soon as we saw someone become selfish and keep everything for himself, he said everyone knew that was the beginning of the end for that man. That was the beginning of the end. Walk not after the flesh. Who are you serving? 
Who are you serving? Who are you living for? I tell you, this one thing would transform our lives if we could get Christ-centered rather than me-centered. That's why we have marriage problems. Do you need to go to a marriage counselor? It's pretty simple. I think every problem in a marriage could be traced back to selfishness. Selfishness. I believe every one of them could be. Young people struggle in the home. It's pretty simple. It's pretty simple. Selfishness. If you could be a worker bee and live for the bigger calls. But too many of us are drones. We're like leeches. And we just become a liability rather than an asset. Why has the fabric of our homes and churches and community fell apart? Because life is about me. Too many drones, not enough workers. Let's go on to the third point, free from the law of sin and death. There was once a, a doctor. There was once a doctor who went around setting up hospitals. And this is a bit of an allegory. But I want to bring out a point. A doctor went about setting up hospitals and since it was his life's work setting up hospitals, he never stayed long after the hospital was set up and he would move on. But before he moved on, his parting words were this, I'm going away for a while. Here's my cell phone number. Please call me often. And here is a booklet with guidelines in how to run the hospital. Study it. Study it lots. Anyhow, the hospital began to function. Babies were born there, grew up. Sick folks came in and they would take the manual and they would open it up and they would diagnose the sickness and the people would get good. They would become well. Things went well for a time, but slowly but surely there was a change. And one of those changes was that in the center of this book, these guidelines, how to run the hospital, there was a mirror. And this was a special mirror right in the center of this um, guidebook. It was a special mirror. Actually, if you took the mirror and you looked very carefully into the mirror, the workers could actually find, diagnose, or, or uh, see diseases coming on early on before they really even knew that they were sick. And they could see this disease coming on. So they used the mirror and they look into the mirror and they would see a disease coming. And so they would quickly go to the guidebook and find out what it says about this. They would call the doctor up and talk to him. And hey, they took care of him before it ever diseased their body. This was pretty exciting. But 
After a while, it seemed like a lot of extra work to call the doctor. And some of the workers would look into the mirror and they would see something and then they would start arguing about what they saw. And the mirror, what, what changed is the mirror got used less and less. So then after a while, some of the workers would get sick. Nobody could help them. Phone calls to the doctor became fewer and farther between. Years went by. And one day the doctor returned. And he walked into the hospital. And he said, where's the hospital? And they said, well, right here. This is the hospital. He said, this ain't a hospital. Everybody is sick. They said, it is a hospital. I mean, we've been shining the floors. We've been washing the dishes. We've been doing everything that needed to be done. The doctor says, this is not a hospital. They were so certain that they were still a hospital. The doctor shook his head, took a chain and a padlock, and he locked the hospital doors. You know what that reminds me of? I think it's in the book of James. Don't it talk about the man looking into the mirror and walking away and forgetting what manner of man he was? You think that's a little bit what happened there with the workers? You know, for a while, you know, we look into the Word of God. It becomes a mirror. We're having lots of fun. We're exhorting and admonish one another. There's revival. Things are happening. But slowly but surely, we start... Not seeing things quite the same. And we don't quite love our brother like we used to love him before. And then we actually start arguing over the way it should be or the way it shouldn't be. And after a while, it just seems like nobody's seeing their needs anymore. But church is going on. I mean, we're still coming every Sunday morning and we're still having activities and we're still having prayer meetings and we're still having Bible studies and we say we're still a church. But if Jesus came back, he says, what? What's this? This isn't a church. This isn't a church. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all with open face, beholding in a glass the glory of the Lord. In a glass. There we have that idea of the mirror. And I think that allegory, that was, that was supposed to be a picture of the church the mirror was the Word of God where we look into the Word of God and allow it to show us our spots. Here it says, Beholding in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of God. What a tremendous work of God. Free from the command Influence of sin and death. Back in 1993-94, my wife and I started attending charity. We got to know some of the families in our area, started visiting with them. And we went to charity. Right over that time, there was a tremendous revival that was going on. It was beautiful. Things were happening. And here I was. At that point, I was born again and saved, but I, I had so many needs. I walked into the service, 
And I walked in the service Sunday after Sunday, went to the revival meetings, and there was something about this. I came there with my needs. I came there. I was a mess. I had bondages. And you know, I was convinced. At that point, I was convinced. I hated sin. I hated it, but I kind of decided that, hey, it's just sin, repent, go on, sin, repent, go on, sin, repent, go on. And we got there and all of a sudden, here was a bunch of people who actually were confessing and giving testimony that they've been free from sin. That they're not walking in sin. That they, you don't have to live in bondage to sin. And I was like, really? You mean I actually could be free from this thing? I could be free from the law of sin and death? I mean, I was, I was a terribly angry person. I mean, I had a fuse that was so short that before I could even think, I did the wrong thing. I can remember many a night the children would come in complain to their mom how angry I got. You mean I can be free? I went for help. I went to the altar. I said, God, I see from the testimony of these people, I know from the authority of your word that I can be set free. You know, it's been an exciting journey ever since. A lot of confessions, a lot of repentance, but it had been an uphill climb. I came there among those people. And there was revival. And I found out, you know, it's not okay to live in immorality. It's not okay. You can be delivered. You can live a godly life. Really? All I knew was sin, repent, go on, sin, repent, Go on. You mean I could be free? We came there, and one of the things that really stuck out to me is that these people were not satisfied with a marriage that's mediocre. They talked about loving their wives, and the wives talked about respecting their husbands, and they had meetings where they, they, they studied the Bible and these kind of things. And all of a sudden, I was like, you mean, you mean we can actually have a good marriage? You mean it's possible for me to love my wife no matter who she is or what she is? Do you mean it would do you mean it actually it's actually possible that she would respect and honor me? Is that possible? Oh, God was working in our lives. It was so exciting preach a message. We looked into the mirror of God's Word. We'd run home. we pulled books off of our bookshelf and said, we can't have these books here anymore. There, were, there was burn barrels that were burning this stuff. We'd go home. We'd look at our music. We'd say, that's, that's not God's honoring. I mean, things were happening. Today, I am so thankful. I am so thankful that God sent me to a people who were honest, who were open, who were transparent, and who said you don't have to live under the law of sin and death. Today, I am who I am. A lot of who I am because of that. 
But you know, I'm seeing something different today. I'm seeing husbands who are angry men. And they're angry men next week. And they're angry men the next week. You can't get angry. It's a sin. And they're angry the next week. Oh, I don't want to be angry. Oh, I just get angry twice a month. I mean, that's too often. But it goes on and on and on. I see men who fell into immorality and they repented. And they fell into immorality. And they repented. And they fell into immorality. And they repented. But it seems like they're not going uphill. I say there's something wrong. Jesus Christ wants to free us from the law of sin and death. The power and the grace of God is there to deliver us. Marriages. Sit down and you try to instruct the husband out of the word of God how to relate to his wife. You instruct the wife how to relate to her husband and they go home and live the same way anyhow. I'm saying, where is the power? Where is the grace? What is wrong with our churches? Aren't we looking into the mirror of God's word anymore? Why must, we, why must we continually deal with this contemporary music? I don't understand. I mean, we look into God's Word, in the mirror of God's Word. What has happened? I remember the days when, when we were burning those CDs. What is happening today? God wants to set us free from the law of sin and death. Has the mirror become too difficult or are we too satisfied with where we're at? Young people, young people who are rebellious, it's amazing. It's amazing. Young people who aren't willing to submit to their parents and they live like that one year, two years, three years, four years. Christ wants to set us free from the law of sin and death. It doesn't say you might die. It doesn't say you could die. But if you're going to live after the flesh, the Bible says, ye shall die. One of the problems is I think we have too many drones. Too many that are just a liability. We need a revival. Oh, for those kind of revivals. Where God is working. Where the testimony of their... Fathers are standing up and saying, I've been an angry father. I've been angry at my wife. I've been angry at my children. I am not going to continue to live this way. By the power and grace of God, it's going to be different from now on. And they cry out, And they search and they weep and they plead until God comes through. 
men and women who will stand up and say, I am done walking after myself. I'm done with me. Cry out and weep until they can testify. My meat is to do the will of the Father. Oh, for testimonies of the grace of God working in our lives. I have a hard time looking back and seeing the grace of God. And He's not done with me yet. He's not done with me yet. But looking at who I was and who I am today, there's hope. There's hope for every one of us. There's hope for your marriage. If it wouldn't have been for the fact that I grew up, and thank God I grew up with it, the divorce wasn't an option. I don't know where I'd be today. I can only guess. But I'm glad that I was around the people that were willing to be honest and open and share what God was doing and be able to testify of the grace of God and the working of God and the sanctification of God and the purification of God. Oh, for revival. Oh, for that kind of revival where God is working. So we don't have the testimony. I was like that last week. I'm like that this week. I'm like that next week. And it goes on and on. The Bible does, the Bible does say that if we live for the flesh, we ye shall die. Not maybe, not possibly, not could be. It says if we walk in the Spirit, we shall have life and peace. Not maybe, not possibly. We shall have it. We're going to have it if we will submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so tonight, I'm going to close the meeting just with the appeal to let's get out that mirror. This, that hospital, that allegory of the hospital sounds like too many churches that maybe you would know of. Too many churches. And they finally get tired of looking in the mirror. And there isn't the working of God and the revival and the sanctification and the testimony of the grace of God working in the life. Let's get out the mirror. Let's look into the mirror and let's allow God to work in our lives. What does it say there in James chapter 1? Let's read a couple of those verses. For if any be the hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth this way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. This man shall be blessed in his deed. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this evening again, as we look into your word, we're challenged. Oh, to walk in the Spirit. To walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. To be free from the law of sin and death. God, I pray that you would bring revival to all of us, to my heart also. 
I pray that your word would be so alive, so real as we look into it, that we would be able to diagnose our diseases long before they consume our whole life. God, I pray that your word would become alive and that your power and grace would be working in our individual lives, in our homes, in our church. Pray, Father, that there would be the testimony of your grace in our lives, of the working of God and the overcoming power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bring revival to our hearts, Lord. Renew us. Strengthen us. Move us from glory to glory. Molding us and shaping us into the very image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask your blessing upon each one. May you be glorified and honored. We pray it in Jesus' name.